Welcome to Refresh, a podcast designed to revive, recharge, and renew your faith and give you the tools to follow Jesus. Refresh comes to you from the Salvation Army in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We meet in person every Sunday at 1030 a.m. or online on Facebook and YouTube at Sal Army Gwinnett. We are excited that you have joined us this week and pray that God will bring his word to life. And now for our speaker. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless, empty, and covered in darkness. Then the spirits of the Lord came down and hovered over the dark waters. And then with only four words, just four, God had transformed this dark and empty world into a place where life can thrive. The first four words ever spoken on this earth showcased the power of the voice that spoke them. And after they were spoken, humanity will begin a journey, a pursuit, if you will, chasing these words for generations. And when it's found, when these words are found, these words are as life-changing today as it was the very first time they were ever spoken. God saw the dark and said, let there be light. And for the first time, the darkness was separated. It was removed. And God said that this was good. And so God spent the next five days speaking into existence the very planet that we call home. He separated the waters from the sky. He created dry land so that the the plants and the trees could grow. He artistically filled the heavens of our solar system and created stars and filled them with planets and even our sun. He supplied our sky with birds and our seas with fish. He created animals to provide resources for the land. But he saved his most beloved creation for last, man. Unlike the other creatures, God created man in his image, in his image. And then to the surprise of man, God did something that was, well, that other creators simply just would not do. He gave man his most beloved creation. He gave man authority and dominion over the other creatures. And then after this, God rested, establishing the very first ever Sabbath, a day that God found so much value in, a day of rest, to the point that he made it the fourth command of the Ten Commandments given to Moses. However, before actually taking that Sabbath, it is believed that the second chapter of Genesis 
the account of Adam and Eve, actually took place between the sixth and seventh day before he rested. Now, the scripture says that, that God started to notice that, that Adam was looking a little lonely. And so God then put him into a deep sleep. And then while he was sleeping, God took one of his ribs. And then in his sleep, God created another in his image. And so when God woke up, or when Adam woke up, he saw that God had created something good. He noticed that this other creation was both like him, but not like him. They were one, but different. And so Adam, according to the scripture, said to this new creation, you are the bone of my bones, the flesh of my flesh. You will be called woman, for you are a part of me. And for this reason, then and for all future generations, the scripture says, that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become, once again, one flesh, as it was in the beginning. Let's pray. Father, we pray now. We pray for your wisdom to impart on all of us into this room your discernment lord as we live life but god i pray now that as we dive into the word into the scripture into into what your story is father i pray that it just that it we, we understand what it is that you want that lord that i pray that when we leave here that we're not confused but we know exactly what it is to serve you to be in your kingdom and father i pray everything i say lord only be your gospel truth any of my biases, anything that I say that's wrong or studied wrong, Father, I just pray you wipe them away from my lips. But God, I only want to just pray and present your truth. So Lord, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Good, morning. Good morning. Oh, man. Are you ready for this? Ah, see? All right. We got like one that's really excited. Everybody else is nervous. You know, but one's excited. I'll take that one. All right. Well, we're going to continue our, our study in Ephesus, uh, Ephesus, Ephesians, that's in the city of Ephesus. Work with me here. I'm not nervous, I promise. <laughs> Ephesians. And we're going to be looking just a little bit into, a little bit in chapter four, and then definitely into chapter five. And Tyler, thank you for reading that scripture today. I almost just said, here, how about you preach it today? You looked confident enough, you know. Um, but if you've been with us uh, this whole time so far, as we've been gone through the journey, we've been looking uh, through the book of Ephesians. And, you know, we've been really, uh, the first couple of chapters, have, have really, Paul's been doing, kind of been hitting on the same theme, hasn't he? We've kind of heard the same theme week after week so far. But he's been really hitting this idea of, 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 of the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, but the Gentiles say, hey, listen, I want you to pay attention to this. You are one of us. Because no matter, no matter what the world may say, no matter what your own culture may say, or even what God's kingdom or culture or Israelites or whatever, whatever they say, the human faces of that say, you're one of us. 
doesn't matter. And, he, and he's really preaching this unity. And in fact, he really hits hard and says, listen, when you find Christ, when you are under the blood, when you come to the cross, he says, now you are a part of Israel. He says, our history is your history now. Our prophets are your prophets now. And the promises that God gave us are your promises too. And he says, you're one of us. You're in the family. And so now when I was looking through this chapter, when I started with four and I was looking at five a little bit, you know, Paul's established this unity and this maturity as very important pillars of the church. This is serious stuff. This is stuff that even today we should be thinking about. That, this are, that there is room at Christ's banquet table for all. But then he kind of turns the chapter a little bit and he, he takes the reader to a different pillar, to a very important trait of the church, of a Christ follower. He then really hits a whole chapter on purity. I mean, just hearing the word makes it seem impossible to be pure. I mean, we even spend a lot of money trying to make water pure, and half the time it's not. I mean, not in Gwinnett, of course. Our water is the best. I just took an eight-month class on leadership Gwinnett that told me how great our water is. But I'm going to say is that purity, when you hear the word, it seems impossible, almost disconcerting. I know I'm not, I'm not really sure we can even achieve that. I mean, there's so many different definitions of it, different perspectives of it, of purity. What does that mean? And maybe even some of us may think, is this something we can even achieve on this earth? Or is it a gift that's given to us when we go to the pearling gates? Well done, you've done it. Here's your purity. Come on in. But after spending a lot of time studying and reading this in chapter 4 and 5 about unity with the Gentiles, I'm going to tell you that the very first kind of line, the very first thing that Paul says to the church of Ephesus kind of really confused me a little bit. He just spent all this time going, hey, listen, you're one of us, unity, we're, we're, we're in the team. But the first thing he says, oh, when it comes to purity, stop living and thinking like Gentiles. What about, how can I do? Paul, you just said we're on the team. We're a part of the group. What do you mean? You've been calling us and calling us to the table. And now the first order of business is stop being you. It's like, like telling me, stop being an American. Stop being Caucasian. I mean, you can't. Like, that's how I am. And so he's saying, stop being Gentiles. Well, when I, when I looked into that, what does that mean, stop being Gentiles? When I looked into that, he was not referencing their physical state. He wasn't saying, oh, because you're not Jewish, it's a disadvantage. It's not what he was saying. But he was referencing the fact that the Gentiles had a different way of life, a different way of going about things, a life that most did not bring honor to God. You see, the majority of Gentiles were pagan. And paganism has been the enemy of God since its inception. During the time of the kings, for example, in the Old Testament, Israel fell victim to the false fragrance that paganism gives. It, be, it became a cancer that the nation couldn't get rid of. It corrupted the priest. It turned the temple into a house of, of sin. And because of this, Israel was in bondage to it spiritually, which eventually led them to in bondage physically. This is the consequences of, of such sin. Uh, uh, this, is the, this is the real life stuff of what that looks like. And what Paul here is saying that this cannot happen. This is not the kingdom of God. Well, it's still that purity thing, though. I don't know. That seems pretty tough. I mean, how do, how do you even put a definition on that? 
But he's telling them that you must put off the old Gentile ways and put on the new, which is righteousness and holiness. That's what he's leaning into them. And then, you know, in chapter 4, he actually goes on and he says, let me help you out. I'll give you a few examples. He, he writes them down. He gives them a, a, a list, if you will. And he says that in the kingdom of God, here are some things we can't do. He actually tells them, stop lying. There's no lying in the kingdom of God. God is the God of truth. And we need to be an ambassador of that. He says, so stop the lying. He then goes on to say, in fact, this one was interesting. He says, stop sinning when you're angry. Now, no, he didn't say, don't be angry. He says, stop sinning when you're angry. I mean, we want, sometimes when we get angry, we do some really hurtful stuff, don't we? Sometimes, you know, uh, uh, some of us may be built a little different where it takes a lot to push us over the edge. But, man, when we do, we're going to watch out. And others, it could just be the simplest thing, right? It'd just be like, man, I just, I just really don't like the temperature. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm writing a letter. I mean, it just, we could be set off to an anger. But he's just saying, listen, it's not sinful to be angry. In fact, Christ himself showed a righteous anger multiple times. But Paul said, don't sin when you're angry. And then he goes on and tells the believer, he says, and don't steal. Don't take something that doesn't belong to you. In fact, Paul even says this, instead of stealing, instead of taking, he says that the believer gives generously. He says the kingdom, we don't, we don't take, we give. That's who we are. And then finally, he says to them that there must not be even a hint, the smallest sliver, he says, of sexual immorality. It can't be there. You see, paganism, the culture that they lived in, that's who he's writing to. He's writing to this culture. Paganism devalued sex. That's what it did. It corrupted it, and it turned it into something that it was not created to be. And Paul is really going against the tide here. He's really stepping on maybe some toe. He's really kind of going, listen, do not have sex before marriage. I mean, that's what he's telling them. Oh, gosh, everyone, I just, everyone started to look down. No, I'm still here, I promise. It's okay. But he's telling them, don't, don't have sex before marriage. I mean, so he's really kind of leaning into this. He's saying, my Ephesian friends, he's writing that my Ephesian friends. You may not understand why. Well, this is how it's always been, Paul. This is, this is what the culture says. This is okay to us. This is all right. Listen, it's not, we're not offending anyone. This is, this is socially acceptable. But he's telling them, listen, you may not understand why now. But you will when you go into covenant with your spouse. You'll know why then. You'll know why then. If you remain pure until your marriage, you will see firsthand that sex means something different. It means something more than what the world has been saying it means. And he's saying to them that if we engage in such acts, that if we engage in these ways, um, he really hits them with this. He says that we, we become a thief, robbing the covenant that was given to husband and wife in the garden. 
And Paul did. If you recall, he just said that the believer are not to steal. And so the Ephesians that he's writing to, the Ephesians had such a worldview of sex and relationships. This is just really, that Paul, he really felt the need to to turn the conversation just a little. He kind of hit this sexual immorality going, okay, listen, here's what that means. I know this is a foreign thought to you, but here's what purity looks like in the kingdom of God. And then he turns the conversation just a little bit going, oh, and by the way, that covenant relationship that I was talking about, let's dive into that. So he, he turns the conversation to the covenant between a husband and a wife. And it wasn't that the, that the church of Ephesus or the Ephesians or, the, or that side of the world, it wasn't as if they didn't know what marriage was. They've been, they've been married, they've been practicing that. That's not a new concept to them. But instead, he was showing them that it's something more than you think it is. It's a covenant. It's a relationship that God ordained and blesses. And he, so he goes, listen, you've got to hear this, Ephesians, you've got to hear this. You see, paganism had corrupted the marriage relationship it just corrupted it it tore it to pieces a man would take multiple wives and have multiple families this was okay this was normal he would marry one and marry another and he had multiple families and even israel wasn't exempt to this as witnessed again during the time of the kings i mean even solomon himself had 800 wives and 300 concubines that's a lot. Like one's good for me, you know. But 800 wives and 300 concubines. I mean, listen, this is something that as I, just by the nature of my position, when I, when I just and throughout life, people, when they want to come and question the authority of the scripture, this is one that comes up all the time. Well, why did they on the, why in the Bible on the Old Testament, they have all these wives? Maybe even King Solomon himself, the wise one, had 800 wives. I'm going to tell you this now, that even though we see polygamy in the scriptures, it was never God's intent from the beginning. Never. It was always to be one man and one woman to become one flesh. And when we see it in the scripture, when we see it throughout the Old Testament, we are witnessing sinful humanity in writing. That's what we're witnessing. What are we talking about in the scripture? I thought that's where we go. Yes, the historical account of Israel falling and being redeemed. But polygamy, having more than one wife, is never God's intent from the garden. It was always for one man, one woman, one flesh. And so then Paul says that they, that not only to have one spouse, to, have, to be faithful to them. He's not saying that, you know, they listen, there's only one of them, there's, and you should be faithful. But then he introduces a new concept to the Gentiles. Something that was a little different for them. He introduces the idea that marriage isn't a transactional relationship. That it's not a transactional relationship. You see, for centuries, marriage was a way for a man to expand his territory. His value, his worth to society. This was first century even before and a little after. We all know that. We all read the history books. We know that part. And women didn't really have much to say in that process. It was transactional. That's how it was being viewed for most of the world. And what Paul is saying is that this is not how the believer sees marriage. 
It is not transactional. Marriage is not transactional. But instead, this is what he writes, he said instead that the husbands and wives are to submit to each other in a way that is different than the other relationships on this earth. It's in that they should submit, submit to each other. Now, that word submission, can we close the doors? No, that word submission has been given a lot of different meanings over the years, hasn't it? We've kind of been looking at that word and we're going, okay, what does it mean? I've heard this on this and I've heard that on that. But this word submission, what does this exactly mean? But I think its meaning is quite simple when we just look at the scripture for what it says. Instead of us trying to create something out of it, let's just see what it says. And here he writes that wives are to submit to their husband's leadership over the family. Just like how the church submits to Christ's leadership. Now we must not, listen to me now, we must not, guys, we must not make submission to mean household expectations. To have dinner on the table every night, to make sure the laundry's done, that the house is clean, the kids are bathed, that they're put to bed. This is not the submission that Paul is referring to. See, this type of submission is transactional. That's a transactional marriage. And in fact, and I did look through this, because listen, when I was going through Ephesians, I was like, well, there's that chapter five we got to hit. Here we go. So I've been reading on this. And so the scripture, I look, nowhere in scripture does it ever use the word obey in reference to the marriage relationship. Anywhere. Nowhere. But it says to submit. Submit. Submission is a mutual act that says that you care about the other person more than yourself. More than me. It's, it's us giving up our desire for me and trading it in for us. For us. And of course, there are, there are times when this doesn't happen. There are times when the wife must step into that role. I mean, I think of single mothers. I think of my mother. I mean, my father left us when I was two by his choice. He left my mother to raise me and my brother on her own as he pursued his passions, which were not us. And so all of my life, I witnessed, and I know mom's watching, I love you. I witnessed my mother having to be both husband and wife. And I'm going to tell you that it got really interesting when I came home from school and I said, Mom, I think I need to start shaving. <laughs> and she went, here you go. <laughs> we were figuring it out together. But my mom was always there. Always providing for me. Taking care of me. And I'm in love with my mother. Who, by the way, tomorrow she starts her drive here and will be spending the summer with us. 
I know. That's how I feel too, by the way. And so I want to just say, I want you to hear me when I say this to the single moms and to the single fathers. I have a soft place in my heart for you. And God sees you. He sees you. He knows. He knows. You know, oftentimes the the marriage relationship gets out of balance. Usually because of one spouse. Now historically, I just call it what it is. It's usually been the man. It's usually been us. We've been out of balance. We've, had, we've seen things a little maybe out of perspective. And we often, as guys, sometimes often want our wives' submission to be transactional. Only going one direction. And Paul, he addresses this. Paul says, listen, all right, guys, this is not what submission means. And he addresses this. And so, yes, he, he leaned in and said, he said, ladies, women, wives, here's what it is. But guys, listen up. And he writes down. And he says that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. But could you imagine? Could you imagine if Christ's love toward the church was transactional? That if Christ put us on the cross while he watched from the crowd. However, it was Christ hanging there for us and still saying somehow, still having the strength and the love to say, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. And it's because of that sacrificial love. It's because of that moment on the cross that you and I, we feel protected, provided for. We feel secure and safe. We can cast our worries, our anxieties, our pains on him. He will be by our side. He will carry us through. And likewise, this is the role of the husband. As the husband, I am responsible for being in oneness with Christ so that when my wife sees me, she sees Christ. That's my role. That's my responsibility. I'm responsible for being in one with Christ. That when she sees me, she sees protection, provision, and security, and safety. That she can cast her worries on me, her anxieties on me, her pain on me. I will be by her side. I will carry her through when the strength of Christ. And we often mistake love simply as an emotion. And it is not. Love is a choice that we make every single day. Christ chose us. Husbands, choose your wives. Choose your wives because they're worth it. And I understand. I understand that life doesn't always go the way we think it will. And in divorce, husband leaves, wife leaves. It gets messy. Listen, I get that. I lived that. But the one thing I can tell you 
is that Christ sees you. That if there's any in your heart and in your soul, if right now you're in your marriage relationship and you are sinning, you are looking at pornography at night, you are abusive to your spouse, that it is only transactional in one direction, this, my friends, is not the kingdom of God. This is not what our spouse is worth. For Christ chose us. Choose your spouse. And so I don't know if Josh is in here. If you can come up and start playing. But I'm going to tell you that this relationship, marriage, and I know some of you aren't even married, and some of you are going to be married soon, just depending on where you are in life. But if you're not married, this is how serious it is. That when you choose your spouse, you're making a choice to love him or her daily. Every day. That you're always going to be thinking us over me. And what I've noticed is that when the two are in balance, when the two are actually thinking of us, then what we see is Christ's love pour out on each other and then on your children. And then your children raise in a house that says, that, that's what Christ's love must look like. It doesn't mean we're perfect. No, and my wife, if she was here, I think she's with the kids. That wasn't by design, by the way. She's with the kids in the van. But if my wife was here, she would say, listen, let me tell you all his flaws. All right, because if anyone in the world knows him, it's her, right? But at the end of the day, we always, what can I do for you? What can I take off your plate? And guys, listen, I want to tell you, there is power. I'm talking power in doing the dishes. You're not, see, the ones laughing or not, they're not married. Now listen, I'm telling you, at the beginning of the marriage relationship, it's all about, you know, I brought home flowers. See, for me, my mom, or my, my, well, my mom was very loved. My wife, she would bake me cookies, which is probably why I put on 50 pounds, but she would bake me cookies, but that was her act of love of going, I'm so glad we're married. Here's some cookie. Oh my goodness, I can get used to this, you know. But then as time goes by, yeah, maybe we're not baking as many cookies. Probably for a good reason. But it's, we show love and expression differently. Why? Because we grew together. We started a path together. And when we started the marriage at the beginning, it was here's what I individually can bring. Here's what I individually can bring. And now, celebrating this summer, 13 years. Yeah. When celebrating that, now it's here's what we bring. Here's what we bring. And my kids only know us as we, not as I. <laughs> they haven't seen that part, right? It was just we bring. And there's power and doing the dishes and taking the trash out and saying, let me take care of that deer. So 
if, if we were to live our lives like this, pure, righteous, holy, honoring in our marriages, we will then, I think, I think if I was, when I was reading the scripture, I think we would finally become the very thing that was given to us in the beginning. The very thing that separated and removed the darkness. Paul writes in chapter 4 that we become children of light. Children of light. So this morning, as Josh plays, if your spouse is here, I want you to pray together. In your seats, in the altar, over your marriage. If you are about to be married, I want you to pray with each other to prepare your heart and your mind for this relationship. If you're a single mom or a single dad, I want you to pray with your children. But this time right now is for us to be with him. To realign us and guide us. My Father, I want to be a child of light. Amen. Maybe some of this time together right now, I know when I speak for myself, that some of this time may be starting off with, I'm sorry. And just apologizing for maybe how we were, how you are. Maybe this is a time right now where you, in your heart, you've got to give something up. There's something else that's more important than your spouse than your family. And maybe this time is just for the two of you just to become one again. To become one. Just become one.
And if there's someone else in your life that's not your spouse, there's another one, another girl, another boy. Stop it. Got to knock it off. You're at one with your wife, one with your husband. Got to stop. And when we leave here, we're going to be married because we choose each other. Because Christ chose us. And I also know, as we close, that there are those who are single who will never be married. Or those that maybe were married but not, you don't have any kids. I want to just tell you that God sees you. You're not less than because you're not married. You're not, you're not alone because you're not married. Relationships may look different. Of course they do. But I'm going to tell you that there is a place in the kingdom of God for you. And don't let anyone else otherwise say. But one of our greatest apostles that we have written was, was single. But God sees us where we are. Father, we pray now with your word, with your truth, Lord, fall fresh on us. And now, Lord, I just pray that if any of us, including me, are falling short in our relationships, be it in our marriage, with our family, or with our friends, that if we're falling short in those relationships, God, then I do pray that you convict our hearts and that the spirit in us, that we lean in and plead for forgiveness. And then we motion and move, Father, to reconcile. That God, in our relationships, we want others to see you. And so, Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to Refresh. Be sure to hit subscribe and like us on Facebook and YouTube to never miss an episode. If you liked what you heard, be sure to share it with your friends and family. We pray that you will be refreshed and ready to take on your week. See you next time. God bless.